This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Scott, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about gene therapy, rare eye disease, and, and how Adelia Therapeutics is, is trying to address the economic and commercial barriers potentially curative therapies face in ever making it to market. Perhaps you can begin with, with your own story and how you became involved in rare eye disease. Absolutely. So uh, I have uh, two 17-year-old twins that have a rare eye disease uh, uh, called Usher 1C. Uh, they were born profoundly deaf and uh, have uh, balance uh, issues. And then uh, as they were coming through puberty right around uh, 11, 12 years old, uh, they developed uh, a retinal phenotype uh, for RP or retinal pigmentosa, which uh, is a, a cause from the Usher 1C gene. Uh, we went immediately in, uh, at that time, funded through Usher 2020, a foundation to be able to find the sciences. We were able to uh, develop a couple of sciences, bring them through uh, to where we thought one was ready to go to clinic. And we went to find a sponsor to bring it through. Uh, and there were no takers because the prevalence of the ultra-rare uh, was only about 300 in the United States. So uh, there were really no takers from the commercial aspect. So we had to retrench and the same time I was uh, talking with uh, Luke Vandenberg at Mass Eye and Ear, uh, we, we had been uh, working together on some science for RUSH-1C, uh, told him some of the issues I was thinking and that I had had a concept to develop a, a nonprofit uh, company that would help facilitate bringing these ultra-rare eye diseases, especially the inherited retinal eye diseases, into uh, from proof of concept into the clinic, and, and he 
had the, uh, not, I wouldn't say exact, but I would say we overlapped 80% in terms of our concepts of what he had thought to do as well to get some of his sciences across. And uh, the two organizations between Usher 2020 and Mass Ioneer came together. Um, we went out and uh, talked with uh, some of the top people in the world regarding uh, joining in from the, uh, the sort of the brain trust side in uh, joining the board. Um, and we had just a phenomenal response of uh, scientists uh, and well-established people in the industry that wanted to be a part of it. And uh, that was sort of the birth of Odelia. What is the experience like of, of squiring this potentially curative therapy for your sons towards the clinic and then hitting that wall of companies saying there's just no economic incentive to doing it? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of these things that you, you know, you, you as, a, as a parent, if I just take off my uh, my business side of this and just look at the the, uh, the parental piece, you know, it's it's one of the most devastating things you'll ever have happen when you find out that one or more of your children, number one, we went through a, a sort of a grieving period when we found out that they were profoundly deaf, and then, you know, we were sort of happy-go-lucky from that point on. They got cochlear implants. Life was actually going along pretty well, and things weren't too bad until they hit that 11-year-old mark. All of a sudden, we realized they were losing their vision. And then we really got scared. Uh, I mean, honestly, we were in uh, somewhat of a, uh, I wouldn't say depression, but a funk for for a while because uh, it was almost like we didn't know what to do. There was absolutely no uh, no therapies or cures out there. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to fund the foundation to be able to go uh, uh, finance the sciences. And so we got all excited about our ability to do that and ability to attract some of the really good scientists around the world. and put several of them to work, and only to find out that when we got to the to proof of concept stage that there was no one to take it forward, and we had, it never occurred to us that if we got a science that would work and save someone's vision, that there would not be a, a, someone on the other end that would be willing to, to develop the drug. That was like the next stage of, of, of being disappointed. There have been very promising developments with gene therapy, particularly in the area of inherited eye disease. Spark Therapeutics notably won approval for Luxterna. Why might Luxterna be an exception rather than the rule for patients with inherited eye disease? Well, we don't believe it's an exception. I think there's been a lot of learnings from it. And uh, obviously, each gene has got its own different characteristics and different issues in terms of, you know, where, you know which vector it, it um our viral uh, uh, vector it'll fit on, uh, whether it has multiple isoforms or versions of the same gene. Um, there's all kinds of complexities, but what we do learn from uh, genes work in RP65 is that the process can be duplicated, uh, learn from uh, where the hits and misses are, uh, and the advances in how to express into the retina and actually get photoreceptors to, to uh, you know, be saved or, or and, and not go any further. So I think there's been a tremendous amount of learning from from the work they've done, uh, as well as hope. And and um, so I, I you know you've seen a tremendous amount of activity, especially on the science side, getting geared up, as well as some of the financial side coming in to support sciences because of the work uh, that they've done on RP RP sixty five. Just to clarify what I was getting at, I, I, I look at that gene therapy being difficult to replicate only in that there are so many 
inherited eye diseases with smaller populations. How big a, a world of eye diseases are we talking about where gene therapy might be curative, and, and how big are those patient populations relative to what SPARC pursued? Yeah, great question. Um, so the SPARC population, um, so back up for a second, we feel there's a, a little over 125 uh, genes that we're researching now for inherited, uh, inherited retinal disease where we can actually uh, find therapies for that we think that ultimately could uh, help them. Uh, we have a, a group that researches each of those genes, finds out uh, if there's an animal model, finds out if there's a therapy being worked on, who's working on it, what stage it's in, and does it seem to be therapeutic? And we put it into different categories of whether it's sort of a green, uh, yellow, or red. And, and what that does is sort of gives us an indication of which ones are on the hot seat, ready to move forward. And surprisingly, without, you know, being overly giving up too much confidential information, there's a reasonable amount of uh, genes that are getting close to proof of concept that could go into clinical trials um, if we had a sponsor or had a means to do it. And I think the issue becomes um, most of them, most of those are, are actually smaller populations than uh, the RP65 gene. But some of them, uh, one that Odelia is working on now is RP-GRIP1, which is about the same prevalence as, as uh, RP65. So there's one that we're in the preclinical work right now, and hopefully uh, someday soon we'll be in the pre-IND stage with that. Why a, a nonprofit organization? What does that allow you to do that you couldn't do as a for-profit company? Um, well, two, two things. Uh, the, the first and the easiest one to answer is that the collaborative effort uh, of being nonprofit is much, much better. So where in the uh, for-profit world, everyone's worried about sharing data because someone else will profit from it, which is the whole point of why they're in it. In the nonprofit world, we only have one mission. We're, we're, we're not impeding. We're always moving forward. And anyone that can do that for us is welcome to data. So we share with everybody, and in and and as our non we we sort of hang our nonprofit shingle out. I think what ends up happening uh, is that everyone opens their doors. They look at it and go, "Wow, you know, this is not for personal gain. This is really the cure vision that wouldn't be cured otherwise." And we have found it an amazing approach. And so we have had more collaboration than I think you'll ever see in a for-profit environment. That's number one. Number two is we can bring in money. Uh, from uh, either uh, philanthropic money as well as corporate money that want to have a proof of concept and use Odelia sort of as a de-risking environment as a nonprofit entity where we can get things done um, less expensively because as nonprofit, we've gone to some of the service providers, uh, GMP manufacturing, farm talks, regulatory consultants, and we've brokered um, nonprofit rates that are you know very attractive. And so as long as we keep the therapy through the nonprofit arm, they'll honor these nonprofit rates. As soon as someone takes it over and commercializes it, then it has to go into the for-profit uh, arena, which raises them all those costs. So I think with scale and that, we've, we've really done a nice thing. You're certainly not the first nonprofit drug development company. Have you learned anything from looking at others that have taken this path? Well, I think the one thing that we're, we're, uh, uh, we have learned and we're, we're actually trying to uh, use some of those learnings to move forward is to develop a 
pre-competitive consortium, which we hope one day will turn into a sort of a trade organization, which is taking these for-profit companies uh, in the in, prior to them being competitive in this the arena, putting them together uh, to figure out the best ways, the most efficient ways to, to develop the drugs, uh, letting them come together and learn from each other uh, while they're not competitive, and then ultimately when they do, they you know we separate or become a trade organization. So we've watched other uh, diseases, uh, these groups do that. Um, uh, I think Luke has pointed to. Uh, one that's been particularly successful with tropical diseases, um, particularly outside the U.S., uh, where they've had a trade organization or pre-competitive consortium come together and have really made headway. So we're we're studying those, we're learning from it, and we hope to uh, be able to do that very shortly. And how exactly does your model work? So we have um, a group of uh, uh, our uh, research scientists that are working on establishing which are the genes that are actual targets for us, uh, and then we're sort of blanketing, you know, all the PIs out there are the principal investigators trying to find targets that have proof of concept. So when we enter, we try and enter at the uh, proof of concept stage, which means it's either uh, efficacy results in the lab. Uh, there may or may not be a model, but hopefully there is some kind of large animal model that has uh, been able to be cured or showed uh, some efficacy results uh, with the treatment. Uh, and it's ready to go uh, sort of into the pre-IND stages. Then we insert ourselves, and we are able to apply either discounts, uh, combine either family funds, uh, foundation funds, uh, philanthropic funds that we go get, or commercial funds. And so one of the, one of the appealing things for our nonprofit status uh, is that we can take a development company that wants to develop uh, or, or actually take a, uh, a gene and uh, inherit retinal disease, create a drug for it, and bring it through to clinical trial, but does not want to be in the early risk stage in it. So they they could uh, invest in Odelia either as a member or even as just a philanthropic donation, but with a first right of refusal for that gene or a combination of those genes that they may want to take once we risk it and show that it has um, some clinical proof concept once we get into the you know early clinical stage. And then their risk has gone down um, exponentially, and then they have a first write-off. And how do you prioritize your pipeline? Um, we do it on two, two ways. Uh, the first way is it's got to be in the right uh, mode or modality for us. It has to be ready to go. So we prioritize them based on our scientific uh, evaluation through our board, our scientific advisory board, as to which of those genes have the most likelihood for success right now. So if there's a, so priority would be, you know, uh, a, an animal model, if it exists, if there's efficacy results and they exist, if it's simple um, isoform construction, meaning there's no, it's not a complicated uh, model at this point, and we can move it forward uh, fairly easily. So we are looking for low-hanging fruit, uh, but we don't care about prevalence. So that's that's the one difference. I think you look at us versus a development company that would look for profit. We don't care if there's two thousand, five thousand in the U.S. or two hundred. Uh, we're looking for just moving science just to, to bring it into the clinic and get them done 
And if we can help facilitate it, getting it into a commercial sponsor, that's one less that we have to do. So, you know, the ideal case for us is that we get this de-risk. Um, we bring it in and we get it into an early stage trial and a, a commercial sponsor wants to come take it off our hand and go develop it into a commercialized drug. That's all fine. It's one less that we have to do. And where do the candidates come from? We have a network. <laughs> so you mean the target? The, yeah. the target gene? The gene therapies. Oh, that's what, that's, that's probably one of our uh, key primary purposes. We're, we're talking to every drug, you know, every drug development company that's, that's working in the, in the area. We're at uh, the, the trade organizations, trade shows. We're talking to uh, uh, the principal investigators at the academic institutions. And we're really just trying to absorb the targets and find out which ones are in that list. And then we research them and we put them into a uh, sort of a category as to whether they're ready now. Um, and then we're out, you know, we're early stage. So this is still for us uh, early stage company um, trying to figure out how many we can get across uh, into the clinical trial area. And how virtual is the model? Do you do you build in-house capabilities to do certain things, or is this all farmed out? Uh, I would say uh, the, the uh, we, we don't have a lab for our own, so that's farmed out. Um, any farm tox work is all farmed out. Uh, what we do, the core components we have are the intellectual property. Uh, we have uh, the researchers that we do work for us uh, that are working on finding the targets. Uh, we have um, the majority of the service providers that, that we've networked with, we source in-house. But any lab work, um, initiatives, that's all virtual. And how cost-effective do you think you are compared to a, a traditional for-profit company? Um, well, I would tell you that uh, what our hopes are versus what, what, <laughs> what, uh, what we know yet. So. I think there's two answers to that. The first, the first answer is what our target is, and that's to bring it around 50% of the cost of what you would do in a for-profit. Um, I think as we go forward and the more we are able to bring into the clinic, the better results we're going to get on that. So I don't think the first one is going to be 50%, but I do believe that the fifth one is going to be below 50%. And if I understand you correctly, the ideal model is that you take this to proof of concept and then license it out to a, a drug company, a more traditional drug company, is that right? Yeah, that would be that would be the, the best answer for us. Uh, it, it, and if we could tie that in, if there is an economic or commercialization, uh, the, the absolute perfect scenario that we've sort of theorized, uh, the idealistic area, would be that we have one of our higher prevalence targets that is just not quite large enough in terms of U.S. population for someone to take the risk. But if there was de-risk, they could make a decent amount of money on it. And they come in and they they uh, help promote that uh, drug. We de-risked it. It's ready now to be taken commercial, uh, to a commercial uh, outcome. But we ask them uh, for the rights to do that. They take one or two other smaller ones, and they have to take it along with so that would be the optimal uh, strategy. So take, you know, if you're, if you're going to monetize and commercialize uh, one of the higher prevalence genes, we want you to take another one along for the ride. Given some of the commercial barriers, does this perhaps call for some new kind of commercial model on the other side to see these therapies live? 
Well, that's a good, yeah. So one of the concepts is if we can develop more of a platform approach where we can do, you know, so one of the, the interesting things about uh, the eye is it doesn't require a lot of drug material to be manufactured. So if we had a platform approach where we could do some of that manufacturing at once, store it, rather than having to reinvent that each and every time, or do one farm tox study for, an, for a platform where Odelia holds the letters of cross-reference so that those don't have to be repeat, repeated. But what it ends up doing is as you do one, the next one becomes less expensive, faster, and then they exponentially get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper down the line. Scott Dorfman, CEO of Odelia Therapeutics. Scott, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.